0: Well, if you have your Bible, please do open back up to Revelation 2. It'll be really helpful for you to have that in front of you as we look at it this morning. Now, last year, towards the end of the summer, I participated in a triathlon named the Goat Triathlon, the Glens of Antrim Triathlon. It's known for being a very tough triathlon, and it definitely lived up to its reputation. For a full half hour of the cycle, there was a steep uphill ascent and it just did not let up at all. As I was contemplating stopping for a break, would you hear what happened? This glamorous lady, who was much older than me, all tanned, blonde hair, bright pink triathlon suit, she just sauntered past me like it was nothing. And my my race number was number seven. And she said as she passed me with ease, come on, number seven, keep going. You can do it. You're nearly at the top. Now, you can imagine for a few different reasons, this motivated me. (laughs) But her words were just the encouragement I needed to keep going when the going was really tough and I wanted to just stop. I thankfully made it through the bike section, made it through the run, which was very tough. But you know, the toughness of the race in many ways made the moment of reaching the finish line all the more special. In the passage we're looking at this morning, we have Jesus directly giving encouragement to weary Christians in Smyrna who feel like everything is uphill and hard. Essentially, he says to his people and to us through his word this morning, keep going weary, Christian. I'm waiting for you at the finish line and when you get here, you will see that all the perseverance was worth it. That is the main message that Jesus gives to the church at Smyrna and to us this morning. And how we all need this kind of encouragement at different stages of life. When things are tough, when we're weary, when difficult thing compounds upon difficult thing, Sometimes we just feel like we want to stop. We can't keep going. Well, here is direct encouragement from Jesus as we face whatever our own steep hill in front of us is. Encouragement from the one who has gone before us. This section from chapter 2, verses 8 to 11 is the second of seven letters to the seven churches that open the book of Revelation. This is a letter addressed to a church in a place, as I mentioned, named Smyrna. It's a city today that is called Izmir, I-Z-M-I-R. You can look it up on Google Maps or whatever way you look this sort of thing up. It's actually the third largest city in Turkey today after Istanbul and Ankara. As today, back in the first century, the city of Smyrna was hard ground for the gospel. It was a city with special status as a center for the worship of the Roman gods and goddesses. If you refused to acknowledge the Roman Caesar as divine and his pantheon of deities as divine, you could face imprisonment and death. There were many pagan people who were opposed to the gospel taking root in Smyrna. From church history and from secular history, we also know that there was a large Jewish population in the city of Smyrna. They had, we know, a fairly cozy relationship with the city governing authorities. They had a special dispensation that allowed them to worship in their own way. They didn't face the same pressure and penalties as, for example, the Christians faced. The Jews in Smyrna, we know, openly slandered Christians to make sure that the governing officials of the city knew that these Christians, they're not part of us. They're not part of this Judaism. They don't qualify for this special protection. So for Christians, and this little church planted in Smyrna, living out their faith, Well, it was tough. And how encouraging it must have been when the letter, the book of Revelation, arrived to be read out in their public gathering. When they heard to the church in Smyrna, here's what I'm saying. Imagine what that must have been like to us. Little us in Smyrna? Someone's thought of us? And it's not just someone who has thought of them. These, as we read in verse 8, are the words of Jesus Christ. The one named here is the first and the last. The one who died and came to life. Here for the church at Smyrna is direct spiritual direction and encouragement from the Lord Jesus who himself had gone through tribulation unto death and had blown a hole in the back of death and paved a way to life. This passage is here to encourage faint-hearted Christians to keep going. In an endurance race, you have what are called refreshment stations, dotted along the route. You can stop there, get a quick drink, and be refreshed as you continue. I see in this letter, if you will, three refreshment stations, three encouragements that are to act as places of refreshment for us as we continue to persevere and press on towards our true home in heaven. Three encouragements from Jesus to help the Smyrnaans and us to keep going when the going is tough. Encouragement number one. Jesus says to his people, I know what you're going through. At the beginning of verse 9, we see those two words that I really focused on last week that appear in each of the letters to the churches. I know. Jesus then lists three things he knows about what the Christians are experiencing in Smyrna. He says, first of all there in verse 9, I know your tribulation. Now this is, word tribulation is a general word that refers to the general distresses and difficulties of life in a fallen world such as ours. As Christians, we are not immune from hard things in this world and we know it. Well, Jesus encourages those in Smyrna and us today saying, I know all about the hardships you're going through. And I find this deeply encouraging. We know nothing else of the church in Smyrna apart from what we read here in the Bible. We were in the letter to the church at Ephesus last week. Well, we can go to our New Testament and read The letter to the Ephesians, a much more extended section of teaching that was addressed to the Ephesians. We can read in the book of Acts a detailed account of the gospel arriving in Ephesus and of the church being planted there. We don't get any of that for the church at Smyrna. No record of Acts, in Acts, of the planting of the church. No other accounts of what was going on in Smyrna. And so I think the point is that Smyrna... Would have been known as an insignificant church. Small, finding it very hard to see growth. And Jesus comes to this insignificant little band of Christians, local church, fighting for survival. And he speaks to them. And he says, I know how hard it is for you at Smyrna. I see you. I notice you. You're not insignificant to me. And he says that to the church at Smyrna, but also as the Spirit speaks to us through the living word this morning, he says these words to us. You might be here this morning and you feel just like an insignificant person. Christian, and yet you're going through some really hard things, and no one really knows about it or understands, and you don't want to even really speak about it because you feel like you're going to sound negative, and so you just battle on in silence. Well, Jesus says to little insignificant you, I Know how hard it is for you right now. I see you, I notice you, I love you, and I care for you. I know. I know your tribulation. But then he continues, he says to the Smyrnaens, I know your poverty. The Christians at Smyrna did not enjoy the same job opportunities as others in the city. There was no Equal Opportunities Act that provided fairness for employment, so they were often overlooked in promotions and job opportunities. This meant that they were, the Christians in Smyrna were economically disadvantaged and poorer than others. This was because of their allegiance to Jesus. And Jesus says, I know all about your poverty. And then look at what he adds for their encouragement. But you are rich. In the world's eyes, they may be poor, these Smyrnaian Christians. But Jesus says, in my eyes, your sacrifice has made you Rich. This is a reminder to us as Christians that we don't define wealth as the world defines wealth. You could have a huge savings account, have great, stable financial security in the world's eyes, and in the world's eyes you're rich. But let me tell you this, if you don't have Jesus, it doesn't matter what you have in the bank, you're poor. You can be in the world's eyes poor, poor and have little by means of material resources. But if you have Christ, you are rich. Let me give just a word of encouragement to any who have made decisions in following Christ that have led you to having less, financially speaking. And I know there are some here, and that is the case. Jesus says, I know all about the decisions you have made, that have led you to the place where you are economically less well-off for the sake of my name. But, oh, in my eyes, you are richer for those decisions that you've made. You are storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven. With third, then, Jesus says not just, I know your tribulation and I know your poverty. He says, I know the slander you're experiencing from those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus says to those in Smyrna, look, I know all about how that Jewish community in Smyrna are slandering you before the authorities. Those who do this, they're not true Jews. That means Jesus saying, they're not truly my people. They're still in darkness under the control of Satan, being used as instruments in his hand to lead to your persecution. Paul said elsewhere in Romans two twenty eight, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, just one physically. A Jew is one inwardly, someone who has experienced the Spirit. Sometimes we can be slandered subtly for our faith or not so subtly for our faith in Christ. In those moments, let's always remember who the real enemy is. That is Satan. He takes people of this world and uses them as instruments in his hand to discourage the church. Remember Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Jesus says, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. I know you're being slandered. Here is the point as Jesus opens his address to those in Smyrna. He wants the people to know that he knows. They're not forgotten. He is not a Savior who is far away and uncaring you know as well as I know, it is really hard when you're going through something really difficult and you feel that no one else knows what you're going through. There's never a moment where Jesus does not know. Jesus knows what each of us are going through and carrying this morning, and He cares. Remember, We're in good company. We're with one who understands because he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We have a great high priest who can come alongside us and who before he says anything, he says, I know, I understand. Now let me help you. So Jesus says, This first refreshment station, this first place of encouragement, I know what you're going through. Let this refresh you as you press on in seeking to be faithful at whatever stage of the journey you're on this morning. Second place of refreshment and encouragement, Jesus comes and says, remember, I am sovereign over all that is ahead of you. You can imagine those in Smyrna at this point in hearing the letter read to them, they're now probably hoping that in verse 10, Jesus is going to turn a corner and tell them what he's going to do to step in and remove the persecution. Well, that doesn't happen. In verse 10, Jesus actually helps to prepare the believers at Smyrna for further persecution and tribulation. Look down with me there at verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, that signifies a short fixed time in Revelation, you will have tribulation. I want us to slow down for a moment here because there's something really important that I want us to see and really important that I want us to understand. There are two Actors, if you will, at work in our trials, in all of our trials. And each actor has a design for the trials that they ordain for us. What do I mean by an actor? First person at work in our trials. Well, that's Satan, the devil. Jesus says in verse 10 that the coming suffering originates from the devil, from Satan. He will so orchestrate events in Smyrna so that some of the believers in Smyrna will be imprisoned for their faith in Christ and they will face further tribulation so in trials, here is one that is at work. Satan. He's always at work in our trials. What is his purpose or his design for our trials? Well, to devour our faith. To make us stop trusting God. Now, where do I get that from? I get that from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, when Peter says, Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. He is prowling around. What is he trying to devour? Your faith. And what are we to do to resist him by standing firm in our faith? We keep trusting God in our affliction. So we know that Satan is at work in our trials to lie to us, to speak lies into our ears saying, God doesn't love you. God is not sovereign. This is punishment. You're forgotten. You're being punished for sin. No one cares about you. Sure, it's all your fault anyway. Satan is in your ear trying to make you, in your afflictions, stop trusting God. But, As I said, there are two actors, two people at work in our trials. There is Satan, but God is also at work as an actor in our trials. In the book of Revelation so far, and we're going to see this continually, there has been such a stress on the sovereignty of Christ over all that the church goes through. In this letter, in verse 8, when Jesus is called the first and the last, that is telling us that he is the one who is in control of all history. He has the first and last word on all that happens, everyone. So though the devil plays an active role in orchestrating trials for believers— even though he is evil and morally responsible for his evil intentions, somehow God is sovereign over these trials, and he ordains them for our good. What is his good design for the trials? Well, where Satan's design is to devour our faith, God's design is to strengthen our faith. James 1, 3 and 4. Why we're to consider it a positive thing, to consider it joy even when we face trials? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be mature and complete lacking in nothing. So two actors and two designs in every trial, but let's just make it very, very clear. It's not as if God is jostling with Satan to see who will have the upper hand. No, God is sovereign over Satan and everything he seeks to do. Two actors, two purposes in every trial. We see this brought together most clearly in Genesis chapter 50 verse 20 at the end of Joseph's life. Simon's going to be covering this in a couple of weeks' time, so I don't want to steal his thunder, but sorry, Simon, I can't avoid this. As Joseph reflected on the betrayal of his brothers, his imprisonment, his being forgotten, falsely accused, betrayed, languishing. As he reflects on it all and speaks to his brothers, he says, you meant evil. And of course, Satan in that evil, working and pulling the strings. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, meant it, for good. The same actions in Joseph's life, viewed from two designs, one intention for evil, God's intention for good. Now, let me ask you this question. At which moments of your life Have you come to know more of the sweetness of the Lord, appreciated His strength, and understood your need of Him? When have you clung most closely to the Lord and longed for Him to come more than anything? Is it in your times of comfort or in your times of tribulation? God ordains our trials and orders them to polish off our rough edges to make us vessels more fit to display his glory. It's like this little thing that I know my son Elliot wants, um, a rock tumbler. I don't know if you know what these are. They're these things that it's like a a big sort of, uh, what would you say, like you know one of those things you wind up um, and scares the life out of you. What do you call them? Jack in the box. It's kind of like that, but not. It's, it's this barrel thing, and it's got a wee wheel that you turn. You put in like sort of rough stones into it, and then you put in grit, something rough in it. And when you turn it and some liquid in it, when you turn it and turn it and turn it, the grit rubs off the stones, and when you take out those stones, they become these beautiful polished gems where first they were rough around the edges, and they didn't look good. They come out, tumble around, the grit grinding against them and eroding against them, and they come out in their polished stones, something beautiful. Sometimes God puts us through the rock tumbler to make us more beautiful for His glory. Satan at that moment, in the same trial, has his own design to lie to you and to get at you and to make you stop trusting God. It's a test. But God has a good design. In every affliction, every affliction that his people go through, you can say, I don't understand it, but I know God has a good design even in this. That's the promise of Romans 8.28. Nothing will be meaningless. Not one drop of suffering for the saint will be wasted. So, Jesus says to those at Smyrna and to those at Great Vic... Don't fear what's ahead. Fight that fear with faith in the sovereign goodness of God. This is a call to keep trusting in Him. Jeremiah 29, 9, 11 is one of those well-known passages for a reason. God says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And the Lord says that to each of us this morning. He knows the plans he has for us. He's sovereign. He's good. Though Satan may have a design, God's sovereign design will always trump Satan's design. What is our call? To keep trusting. And that's where we go now in this third refreshment station, this third encouragement from Jesus to those at Smyrna. He said to them so far, I know what you're going through. He said, I am sovereign over all that you're going through now and all that is ahead of you. But now thirdly and finally, he says, for their encouragement and ours, remember, I'm waiting for you at the finish line. With the crown of life in my hand. In the second part of verse 10, Jesus gives the primary instruction to the Christians at Smyrna in this letter Be faithful unto death. And remember, this is not just for them, it's for us. Verse 11 He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So a word that is for all churches down through the years. Christians in Smyrna, Christians in Great Vic, in a world where you will have tribulation and ups and downs, and sometimes you'll feel like you're all uphill on a struggle and you just want to stop. Here is your calling. Be faithful unto death. This is Jesus saying, keep going. Keep trusting me even when you don't understand why the hill is so steep. And Jesus adds two wonderful promises to help us persevere. Be faithful unto death, and what? I will give you the crown of life. Here's Jesus introducing an eternal perspective that we are to keep in mind as we live this life and go through hard things. On Wednesday evening, our small groups were in Philippians chapter 3, where Paul describes the Christian life as a life of pressing on to our true home, where our true citizenship lies in heaven. That's how we are to view our lives. We're pressing on towards our treasure with Christ, our treasure, who is Christ, in heaven. As you run this race home, there will be seasons where it'll be going well. And that's good, that's okay. We're not running and trying to find trouble. Enjoy those moments. Don't get self-sufficient in those moments and forget the Lord. But there will be other seasons where it's hard. But these trials, in the light of eternity, are short. As I said, that's what the 10 days refers to in verse 10. 10 days of tribulation, a short, fixed time. And that is what our lives are. Tribulation for a short, fixed time. But one day, we know those trials will come to their expiry date. And at the finish line stands Jesus, either the finish line of our death or when he returns. He will be the one to greet us at the finish line when we have persevered through all the tribulations of this life, all the sorrows, all the ups and downs. When we go home, finally, Jesus will be there, and he is the one who will personally greet us and give us the finisher's medal or the crown of life. This is an illustrative way of speaking of all the blessings that will come in the eternal life to come that we will enjoy with Jesus. The crown of life is eternal life. And perhaps no one has put this reality and this hope more beautifully than the Apostle Peter. Just drink this in. 1 Peter 5.10 And after you have suffered a little while, a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This will be personal for you. God won't send a deputy to do that job. He himself will crown his own. And at that moment, If we were to receive a finisher's medal, so when you reach the end of a race, someone literally puts the medal around your neck. And if you were to turn around the back and see what was engraved on it, what would be engraved on the back of the medal that Jesus gives to his people? Three words, all of grace. Jesus says, be faithful unto death, I'll be there at the finish line to meet you. But notice he also gives a second promise right at the end there of verse 11. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. We're told in Revelation 20, 14 that the second death is the final judgment where all those who have rejected God's salvation in Christ, all those whose names are not found written in the Lamb's book of life, they will be thrown into the lake of fire. And in that day, Jesus says, my people will not be hurt one bit by that judgment. They will be totally safe. How can this be? Well, because of the the introductory name given to Jesus in this letter. Jesus is the one who went ahead of us through death and paved the path to life. He was faithful, and we hope ultimately in His faithfulness to see us home. You see, this is our greatest hope, not first and ultimately our faithfulness, but His. He's gone through the trials and tribulations, the slander, the attacks from Satan. He was faithful unto death, and on the cross, He took the death and the judgment and the unfaithfulness that should have been ours. But now if we just rest in him, he has promised to preserve us and to bring us home. So Jesus says to the people at Smyrna, keep running because I'm waiting for you at the finish line. And when you get there, you will see that all the perseverance was worth it. So let's just wrap this up, remembering again the word of verse 11. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, what I want us to do, just in closing, is to ponder for a few moments, a few questions. What has the Spirit been speaking to you this morning through His Word? Which of these refreshment stations? has been most significant for you. Ask yourself, have I lost something of my eternal perspective on life? Have I forgotten that I'm running towards my true home? One man who would have read this letter was a man named Polycarp. Polycarp became the bishop of Smyrna the same Smyrna, in A.D. 115. According to the Greek bishop Irenaeus, Polycarp was a disciple of the apostle John. Now, how cool is that? How close is that to Christ? Christ's follower, John, a disciple of John, Polycarp. And we have early church fathers writing that Polycarp knew John personally. And Polycarp becomes the bishop of Smyrna he would have had access to this same letter we're reading. In the middle of the second century, Polycarp, as Bishop of Smyrna, was arrested for refusing to burn incense to the emperor. He was sentenced to be burned at the stake, and when he was invited to renounce Christ at the stake, he responded with these words. Eighty and six years I have served him, And he has done me no wrong. How can I then blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. They proceeded to put him to death polycarp died with his eyes fixed on jesus he was looking to that heavenly finish line and the home of righteousness but there was one other person for whom this promise of the crown of life was very significant there is a letter that has been unearthed that has been attributed to a zimbabwean pastor who was martyred for his faith in christ after he died, this letter that he had written to a friend was found amongst his belongings. And I just want to close reading this letter because this inspires me greatly when I hear Jesus say, be faithful unto death. Here is one who took that very seriously. This pastor writes, I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of Jesus. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I am finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colourless dreams, tame visions, worldly talking, cheap living and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, positions, promotions, plaudits or popularity. I don't have to be right, I don't have to be first, recognised, praised, regarded, I don't have to be rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on his promises, walk by patience. I'm uplifted by prayer, and I labor with power. My face is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My companions are few. My guide is reliable, and my mission is clear. I cannot be bought compromised, deterred, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of martyrdom, hesitate in the presence of the enemy, pander at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, until I have stared up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, and preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of of Jesus. I must keep going until he comes, give until I drop, preach until all know, and work until he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he will have no problem in recognizing me. My banner would be clear, and if I'm martyred, I will have the crown of life. That's the faith. We want to have here at Great Vic. Be faithful unto death. Let's be done with mediocrity. Let's run with perseverance the race marked out for us. We've only got one life. Let's make sure that we're living for that crown of righteousness. When we're in heaven, this day will seem so short. So let's invest in the treasures that we'll never lose. Let's pray together. Father, this is beautiful encouragement from your son, to weary Christians, calling us to keep going, to not be afraid, to make faithfulness our simple and humble goal. We know, Lord, in our own strength, we can't do it, but you're the faithful one, and you have promised to carry us We're prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. But you're the shepherd. He keeps coming after the one that has strayed away. And if there's one that has strayed away in here this morning, I pray this morning they would hear this message and hear Jesus saying, come back, keep going. Or if there's someone in here this morning and they don't know Jesus... And they're still at risk from the second death, the judgment of God. And their name is not in that book of life. I pray that even now, by your Spirit, they would hear you calling them and that they would call and respond and say, Lord Jesus, save me. And for us who are pressing on, O Lord, by the power of your Spirit, cause us to be faithful and help us to see Jesus standing there at the finish line, ready to himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish us. O oh Lord, this morning, help us here at Great Vic to be a faithful people. No matter what happens here in Northern Ireland, may we be faithful. May your church be faithful unto death. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to respond by singing Sovereign Over Us, this song that brings together these designs, but God's greater design to accomplish good even in our affliction. Let's stand together and sing. we yeah. you, that we can trust you. Lord, may your grace and your peace, may the love of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest on us and remain with us and abide with us until that day when we meet with Jesus and he restores us fully. Until that day we say, come Lord Jesus, our hope is in you.
1: Amen. Amen.